Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we bring you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 1994 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Sister Connie Driscoll speaking on the welfare myth. Sister Connie was the co-founder of St. Martin de Porras House of Hope, now the South Side Center of Hope in an impoverished neighborhood on the South Side of Chicago. It's a community for women and their children who are healing and recovering from substance abuse. Sister Connie believed in personal responsibility and refused any type of government aid. When women entered the community, Sister Connie took their welfare checks and taught them how to pay rent. She described her practice in a 1997 Forbes interview. The word on the street is that ours is a tough house. The women always have somewhere to be. Career or computer training, GED classes, alcoholics and narcotics anonymous meetings, or a job here in the house. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I want to tell you that uh, this old lady stands up here needing glasses to see and dressed as a typical nun. <laughs> In the past few years, we've heard more and more about the problem of welfare. The arguments rage about what is best to do about this enormous problem and the enormous drain on our resources. The questions are always, does it harm or does it help those it wishes to serve? If we sever all welfare payments, what happens to the children? Will they starve? Will their homes be available for them? If the parents are forced to work, who will care for them? Let me suggest that, in fact, welfare does, in many instances, more harm than good. In the 12 years that we have operated a shelter for women and children on the south side of Chicago and worked with the poor, we have had in excess of 9,000 women and their children enter our house. All homeless families, less than 1% of that population was not on welfare. So if they were receiving cash grants and food stamps, why are they without housing? I can tell you that a good portion of that money was spent on drugs, high ticket items, and money for the fathers of the children. And I can tell you that the women, the children, and the fathers are dressed a whole lot better than most of us who work with the poor. I have a difficult time justifying handing out money without any accountability for how that money is spent. I believe that if you work for your money, you have the right to spend it as you wish. I also believe that if you are on public welfare, you must use that money for which it was intended. No one monitors the public money put out in public welfare. A case in point, and I'm sure you've heard about it, even in Grand Rapids, although many of you don't want to hear about what goes on in Chicago. The Keystone case. 19 children and five mothers 
living in one apartment in one of the coldest nights ever recorded in Chicago history. There's no heat, there's no food, there's no clothing, there's no linen, and the one child fighting with a dog over a bone. So the police went in, and guess what they found? Those mothers were getting $5,280 per month for public welfare. Now, take away the $320 that they had to spend on an apartment, and other than Bill Clinton, I think I can subtract. <laughs> These are the $4,960. What did they do with it? I can tell you what they did with it. Two of the mothers had cocaine habits that were costing them $100 per day. One mother was in the hospital giving birth to yet another cocaine-addicted baby. One was in jail, and the fathers, who knows? They weren't even a part of the picture. When they went into court, their public defender said that they were all victims of poverty. They weren't victims of poverty. They were victims of their own irresponsible behavior. I don't know of anyone that cannot live on $4,960 and feed those children and not have to worry about a child fighting for a bone with a dog. The judge agreed with our assessment and said, yes, this is wrong. So she said they are victims of their own irresponsible behavior. And so she told them what they had to do. Now, let me tell you that those children are all in state custody. I talked to the lieutenant governor last Monday, and I can tell you what the figures were that, we, that he gave me as to what it has cost so far. It has cost the state $250,000 to keep those 19 children in state custody, and before the parents are ever rehabilitated, assuming that might happen, this case alone will cost in excess of $1 million to the taxpayers of Illinois. And that is only one story of many. The house that we operate in the devastated community of Woodlawn operates under a different philosophy. We're the toughest house in the city, and we're very proud of that. People who come into our house are expected to do many things, but some of those things are to be responsible and accountable. They don't get any free passes in our house. They don't get three hots in a cot, and they don't get coddled. You have a drug abuse problem, you're in the drug abuse program. You don't have an education, you're going to be educated. You have a problem abusing and neglecting your children, you're going to be in the parenting classes. You're going to get up at 6.30 in the morning, and you're going to make your beds, and you're going to dress your children, you're going to go to the dining room, and feed your children. You're going to get them into school because anyone that comes into our house must have their children in school within 24 hours of arrival. 
We say to them, we will do X number of things for you, but you will do X number of things for yourself. We operate our own preschool. We have our own medical clinic. We have all of our substance abuse programs on the premises. No one gets out of our house without a three and a half hour pass. It's the maximum they can get if they're in the substance abuse program. That three and a half hour pass has to say where they're going, who they're going to be seeing, and what they're going to be doing. We are not interested in a pass that says out to go make another baby. We're interested in what are you going to be doing? Are you going to a medical clinic? Are you going to another NA meeting? Are you going to take care of business? But out is not acceptable. My partner, Sister Teresa Sullivan, is the backbone of our whole place. She stands four foot 11, and when I say the backbone, I mean the whole spine is solid steel. <laughs> she even intimidates me. <laughs> Many people talk about who the homeless are, and in our experience, we have discovered who the homeless are. They're always the victim. The fact is, is that they're not homeless because they didn't have money to pay rent. They're homeless because they did not pay their rent. 66% of the people who come into our house come in because they have been evicted. They have either not paid their rent or they have destroyed the apartment. Eviction is the major cause of homelessness. Now you can talk about numbers all you want. If you listen to the National Coalition for the Homeless, they're gonna tell you there are two to three million homeless out there. Utter nonsense. They have no way to even justify that. So just forget the figure. You talk about how many homeless there are, perhaps a half a million nationwide. You talk about how many homeless in Chicago, I'm so sick of picking up the Tribune and the Sun-Times and reading that there are 80,000 homeless in the city of Chicago. I just get sick about it. There are 1,000 people living underneath Wacker Drive. 1,000 people can't fit under Wacker Drive. I go down there quite frequently. And the reason I go down is because I chair the mayor's task force on the homeless. And I periodically go down with the Department of Human Services team to find out what is going on down in the streets. You'll run into maybe five or six, max. That's it. I was down there not too long ago. And as I walked in, uh, one woman told me she was just down there visiting. She owned the McDonald's up the street. Another one told me that she just came down to see how poor folks was because she owned Bloomingdale's. Another man told me what to do to myself, which was physically impossible. So I said, well, all right. <laughs> so there aren't that many people living underneath Wacker Drive. And we do monitor and very carefully take care of them. Uh, Jack Kemp gave us an override in the city of Chicago. I'm not sure if any of you know how our housing works there. It's called the Chicago Housing Authority, and only families can live there. But Jack Kemp gave us an override for 48 apartments uh, that we could put single people in. So I went to the mayor, and by the way, Mayor Daley is a Democrat, closet Republican, I think. Uh, <laughs> Super wonderful guy. And I said, look, we got the apartments. We've got to put something in them. So 
Commissioner of Human Services got the authority from the mayor and we put in refrigerators and uh, stoves, all of the furniture, totally furnished, no rent, stocked it with food, and the people we put in there were out within a week because they didn't want to be there. They wanted to be out on the streets. And we have a problem with that. We don't want them out on the streets. It has nothing to do with the aesthetics of the city. It has to do with people living a dysfunctional lifestyle and disturbing the rights of other people. And that's the reason we go under Wacker Drive and rouse them. We had the same situation at O'Hare Airport. Mayor called me and he said, we have a problem at O'Hare. I said, okay, I got the picture. I'm gonna take care of it. You're gonna hide, right? He says, well, why not? <laughs> so I went out to O'Hare and uh, we said, we had the police with us and we said, we want everybody out of O'Hare. But before that, I had said to Mayor Daly, if we're gonna take them out of O'Hare, what are we gonna do with them? So we came up with two agencies downtown Chicago that are marvelous agencies that have been in existence for a long time, Chicago Christian Industrial League and Haymarket House. And we got them the funding and we put outreach workers at O'Hare and we said, those people who just needed shelter, job training, place to live, we would put those people at CCIL. Those people who had alcohol, drug problems, or had some mental problems, we would put them at Haymarket. And we spent a lot of money to get it done, but you know that people actually go out to O'Hare Airport and go to the outreach office there so they can get transported back into Chicago to get into those two programs. So I would say that has been a rousing success thanks to the city of Chicago. Uh, while I was out there, though, uh, some of the uh, people got a little upset, so they dumped a bucket of cement on my car. <laughs> but that's the way it is. Then we had a problem with a group from Atlanta that came up and said, oh, we're going to build all these nice little four-by-eight plywood shacks for all these homeless people. So they built them. And in there was a little bucket where you could burn something to heat the place and one pipe that went out the ceiling and you used the neighboring area as your bathroom. No running water, nothing. So I called the mayor's office after I had gotten a frantic call and I said, I know, I know. Okay, they're gone. So we tore them all down. So the press went to the mayor's office and said, why did you tear them down? He said, why, don't you, why do you ask me? Why don't you ask her? She did it. <laughs> and I'm happy we did it. Because we don't want people freezing to death in four by eight plywood shacks when we have enough shelter space in the city of Chicago to take care of them. Last year, 40 degrees below zero, 5,300 shelter beds available, we always had additional space in the shelter system. All of the beds were never full. So now discount the 80,000 figure that they bandy about in Chicago as homeless because that simply is not true. We had ample shelter beds all last winter. When I first came to Chicago 12 years ago, we had 300 shelter beds in the whole city and most of those were for men. When Mayor Washington came in I was his token white woman on the Women's Commission. He said, what can I do for you? And I said, let's have some more shelter beds. So we got 1,800. 
uh, total. When Mayor Daley came in, he said, you tell me what you want. He said, I'll give it to you. And I said, I want enough shelter beds so they don't have to read in the paper that people are dying on the street. And he said, you got it, and we do have it. We have the authority to open any park district field office at any time that there aren't enough shelters in the city to handle anybody that needs it. And I think the city of Chicago has done a superior job of doing that. But Mayor Daley has a different tact as a Democrat, you see. He believes in privatization. He believes in turning things over to local government and to local communities. And he believes that the churches should also be responsible for taking care of the needs of the poor among us. So quite frankly, I, uh, I'm glad he didn't run Tuesday because if he'd gotten beaten, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> he really is a pretty good guy. But back to our house. All of our people that are there are there for a very specific reason, and that's to get their lives together. And that's exactly what we teach them to do. There is no point in telling anybody that I hate people running around the shelter system looking for a place to get their lives together. We have people who have come in who have been in every shelter in the city over and over and over again, and they just never seem to get their lives together. They've lost their children. They don't know what to do. State of Illinois already has 44,000 children in the Department of Children and Family Service System that they don't know what to do with. So what we try to do is impart on the women and the children that they have an obligation to set their lives straight. And we're going to do everything that we can possibly do to help them get to that point. They set their own goals, short-term goals to begin with, medium goals, and then long-term goals. Where do you want to go with your life? We have our own computer training programs. We have our own job skills training programs. We do uh, inventory and warehousing programs so that people can go out and get a job. They get literacy training and GED, and their children, our children are tutored every single day, and they go to the local school, which is just a half a block away, and our children are always at the very top in their classes because they have been very well trained in the house. I'm not talking about people who stay in our house five or 10 days. Many of these people are there eight months, 10 months, and if they have six or seven children in Department of Children and Family Services, and they have been sent to our house by a court order, which many of the judges do, sometimes they're there 18 months before we get all their children back for them. But that's what we're there for. That is our responsibility. Most of our staff are ex-residents or residents in training. Most of us all live on the premises. This is not a job. This is a ministry for us. And if anybody comes to work for us, they must understand that if they're there for the money, they can take a hike because I'm the most tight-fisted person in the world. You can ask my security guard over there. He backs up for his paycheck every Friday. <laughs> He's very good, but he will tell you, we are not, we do believe really in a free market economy but we also believe that we have to operate on the lowest budget that we can. 
because we do not take any money from any government agency and we don't take any money from the church, which makes the cardinal totally ecstatic. <laughs> we don't go to him for anything. So we have to raise all of our money privately and we don't want to spend a lot of money on administrative costs. In fact, our administrative costs are right around 7.5%, which is not very much. But given the fact that we're getting so very good about taking toilets apart and fixing water pipes and things like that, we don't usually have to call in extra people to help us out either. Uh, we can pretty much do everything we have to do on our own. Whereas shelters who take government money, and I could give you, for instance, we operate a 140-bed shelter on $295,000 a year. And as the chair of the task force, I get to see all of the requests for funds that come in to the city and the city puts out $22.5 million a year, and they're operating 40-bed uh, shelters on a half a million dollars a year. So that's the big difference between government funding and private funding. When you have the government money handed out as easily as it's handed out, it's very, very simple to just take what you can get and keep on running, and that's not the way we like to operate. We really want to be fiscally accountable. We also want to keep our employees happy, and after all, they get to work with me. Why do they need money, right? <laughs> I think most importantly, what happens with the residents in our house is that they now have the choices of becoming self-sufficient and doing something for themselves. They have learned how to go out and get a job. They've learned how to write a resume. They've learned that they have to be on time. If they're going to keep that job, and they're so happy that they are now making their own money. They're not on public welfare anymore. They can go home, they can spend their money on they want, what they want, but they're so happy that they're self-sufficient. They wanna know that what they have is theirs. And they're tired of being poor and I don't blame them. But they know they can do better now. We have people, one, working as the secretary to the Cook County Board President, couple of them at hotels, one as an accountant, we have them working in hardware stores, we have them as cooks, we have them as secretaries, as computer data entry people, they're working in every phase. One of them works for the Mayor's Office of Employment and Training, and she got the job on her own, nobody went and, and got it for her, she went down and applied, she passed, she got it. That's what makes it so important, is that they do get off of public welfare and they do get out there and work. I can't say that in the 9,000 women and children that have come through our house, that they've all done it. But most of them have tried to do it and they're better off now than they were when they came in. They can't just keep their money when they live in our house. They have to save it. And it's made out into money orders in their own names goes into the safety deposit box, and when they leave, they have all of their money there so that they can live and do what they have to do. That's very satisfying for them. It's the first time in their lives they've ever saved a nickel. Instead of putting it all up their nose or shooting it into their arms, they've got some money now. They're clean, they're drug-free. They sing their praises out behind um, the, on the side porch every single morning. This whole group of women get out there and sing their praises to God. I live next door to a bunch of Carmelites and I pick on the Carmelites all the time. <laughs> and 
In fact, we're sort of attached to them. I have a tunnel that runs from my building, the old school building, into their rectory. Well, periodically they have some nice young seminarians that come to visit, and they don't know about the tunnel. Well, it was raining very hard one morning, and um, I didn't feel like running outside and running in their back door, so I went through the tunnel. And as I'm coming through the tunnel, this young seminarian is just coming out of the laundromat, and here comes this woman with a black eye patch, gray hair, barreling through, and a laundry went, said, Jesus Christ! I said, no, Sister Connie. <laughs> I don't think Frank has ever gotten over that. <laughs> so when the Carmelites give me a hard time, since the boiler is in my building, I just cut their water off. <laughs> but the, the priests next door love to hear our women sing. And they have their own gospel choir going. And they do a super job in standing out there. It's the first time they have really, really come together as a group. And if you've ever been in our house, I mean, there are no private rooms. I mean, this is not the Waikiki Hilton here. This is dormitory-style living, babies crying half the night, some of the babies sick, some on monitors, and they put up with it because they're learning a different way of life and they're learning community life, and that's part of what our house does. In addition to my work with the poor, I've also worked with a variety of other groups organized to help the poor. And I must confess that as well-intentioned as many of these organizations are, much of their efforts are totally wasted. The simple reason is that they are too closely tied to government and government social programs. Government programs are more interested in continuing their own existence rather than ending poverty. Another problem is that at their best, they only deal with the material needs of the poor and not the deeper needs such as family stability and a moral lifestyle. And believe me when I tell you that the government has proved itself to be more of a hindrance than a help. Over the past 40 years, we've cre created the most immoral society ever imposed on a group of people. We've imposed a system that locks people into poverty with no way out. We've slaughtered the work ethic. We've sanctioned the right for teenagers to have babies and collect welfare. All out of wedlock, we've taken away individual responsibility and accountability, and we've given every woman on welfare a reward for having more children. And we're giving the fathers of those children a free ride by making the taxpayers responsible for child support. And my question is, is how can we encourage whole groups of able-bodied adults to abdicate their responsibilities for providing for themselves and their children? We are already into our third generation of entire families knowing nothing other than public support. And my other question is, is how long can we tolerate this system? And this is precisely what fake welfare is. It's sitting home every single day, waiting for that check to come once a month, waiting for the food stamps so that you can go down the street and sell $500 worth of food stamps for $100 because that $100 will buy you 10 bags of crack. That's what fake welfare is. And that's what we have to get rid of. A system that creates apathy and despair and dependence among those that it claims to help 
is absolutely immoral. Welfare is a dead end. It leaves you with nowhere to go. Do we as a community have an obligation to care for the poor, to shelter and feed them, to educate them? Yes, we certainly do. But we also have an obligation to encourage self-sufficiently among the disadvantaged, to empower them to take charge of their own lives. We have to stop playing God from Washington and telling people what they can and cannot do and how much they need and who's going to give it to them. Now that we know the problem, what are the solutions? I'd suggest that there are no easy solutions. It's time that we make welfare a less attractive lifestyle. We should stop paying bonuses to welfare recipients who continue to bear children while on public aid. We have to place a time limit on how long benefits can be received. And we must insist that the benefit recipients become educated and employment ready, and we must demand accountability and responsibility for what they're spending those public benefits on. Welfare rolls have been growing steadily since 1989. They now include almost 14 million people. And nearly 35% of all children in the US are born out of wedlock. A phenomenon I believe may be encouraged by our present welfare programs. Not only will turning this system around take time, but it's also going to cost an awful lot of money. But money isn't going to help that much either. We have spent $5 trillion on the great society programs from the 1960s. And where are we now? The war on poverty has failed because the programs that were created to stem the tide have made no sense whatsoever. Our government encourages fatherless families when it treats out of wedlock births by treating them to even more money. Worse, the system has destroyed the foundation of families. Many believe that illegitimacy will surpass divorce as the main reason for single parent households. And that is really a crying shame and people ought to be weeping over that. Today's welfare was designed to hand out money, not to set people free. Nearly 30% of all Americans are now born to single mothers, 22% of whites and 66% of blacks. And I believe that without welfare, those figures would drop significantly. Tinkering at the edges of the problem will not do any good. The entire apparatus of public welfare has to be dismantled. The Gordian knot must be cut, and it has to be cut once and for all. And we can't turn back. There's no place to go with it. It has to end. And I would suggest that it is incumbent upon all of us to become a part of this from our churches. Where are our churches in this? Our churches ought to be right in the forefront of this entire fight. It's time for us to stand up and be morally accountable for what we preach. We preach continuously that we are there to help people. Where are the churches? We've gotta get the churches back involved. And once we get the churches involved, we're going to get the community involved. And when we get the community involved, we're going to get the city involved. And then we can stop worrying about what's happening in Washington, what's happening in the governor's mansion. 
It's going to take place in our own communities. I can't walk the street of my community without a security guard. And even with him, I feel badly because I know if somebody is going to shoot at me, they're going to get him too. The violence that comes from drugs and poverty has got to stop. And every church, pastor, minister, priest is going to have to stand up and be accounted. They're going to have to say, it's time we take back our communities. It's time we stop the free government money. It's time that we tell Washington to take a flying leap. Maybe that happened Tuesday. <laughs> On the other hand, maybe didn't. We're not certain exactly who's going to be in the forefront of all of this. We've heard a lot of talk about welfare reform. We heard that two years ago also. But now we've got the opportunity to have a voice in this. And I think we have to take this opportunity and really run with it because we've got an ear now, at least a couple anyway, and we have to be able to go to them and say, look, do something about welfare reform right now. Let's not make it another election issue two years from now. They say they want to change things in 100 days. Let's put their feet to the fire and make sure they do it. Because if we don't stop this now, it's never going to be stopped. It's going to go on and on and on. And we've already seen the destruction of families. How much longer are we going to watch this go on in front of our own eyes and do nothing about it? We work with the poorest of the poor. They don't want to be that poor. They do want a better lifestyle, but somebody has to teach them a better lifestyle. And you can't just say it's all right to keep having these children. I'm not in favor of abortion, on the contrary. I want those mothers that have those children that can't take care of them to put them in small community-based orphanages. If the state's going to take care of them anyway and put them into foster care and move them from one place to another and spend millions and millions of dollars doing it and still have people come out dysfunctional and joining gangs and killing and the violence, that's not any good. Let's do it in our own communities. Let's get these mothers together. Let's teach them how to teach their children to be nonviolent. Many of our windows are blown out on a regular basis, not by the people that we serve, but by the gangs fighting around us. They don't hate us. They hate everybody. You know, just because I wear a black patch doesn't make me a target. Well, yes, it does, but you know, <laughs> sometimes it does. But I still think if we come together and we love and we care and we share, we can and will make the end of welfare as we know it a reality and not a dream. And our leaders must show everyone how a society built upon a free market and the habits of virtue is a more sure and effective escape from poverty than the welfare state. And we've seen what the welfare state has now done for 40 years. And I think you will all agree with me that it has totally failed.
It's failed all of us. And if we want to save these children, we have to do it now. We have little children that come into our house that walk sideways past their parents because they're afraid they're going to get hit. Five months later, I say to a little six-year-old, why are you walking sideways past your mother? You haven't been hit for six months. He says, yeah, but I used to be. Because that's all he knows. Even now, he won't walk straight past her because he knows he's going to get hit. Well, he thinks he's going to get He's not going to get hit in, in our house. We have a lot of people who come in who are very violent. And the children only know violence. So we have mentoring groups that work with these little children who sit on the floor and talk to them, the six and seven-year-olds. They're all broken into their own little age groups so that they can get rid of what anger has come upon them. They, they live such chaotic lives, all of their lives, that they don't know peace and tranquility. They don't know what it's like to sleep in a clean bed and to eat food and to play with other children without worrying about getting shot. They have closed-in play areas. They have inside play areas. They learn how to do things, and they learn how to do it nonviolently. How's my time? Cordell, how's my time? Oh, I'm out of time. <laughs> and aren't you glad? <laughs> I would like to end it there uh, because I want to save some time for any questions that you might have because I'm sure I've missed a million things. But I want to tell you that as a religious, I think that our responsibility in the community as religious is to teach people and to love people and to care for people. And yes, we can be tough, and we can be very tough, but we can also be very compassionate. And the only reason we are doing what we are doing is because we love so much that we want to make certain that the children and those women who really want to live good lives have that opportunity to do it. I guess my time is up. Thank you very much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jaja.